0: Listeners, welcome to the AC Podcast, my name is Troy, but I will not be your host for today's episode. Instead, you're going to be hearing from Steve Kim as he sits down with author and professor Nancy Piercy to talk about her new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Why Can't We Hate Men? That was the title of a 2018 Washington Post opinion piece written by Susanna Danuta Walters, a sociologist at Northeastern University. Written in the wake of the Me Too movement, this piece offers a scathing criticism of men. The term toxic masculinity is familiar to most people by now, and this is increasingly becoming the default view of masculinity. Where does the concept of toxic masculinity come from? Does Christianity make a difference? Steve sits down with Professor Nancy Piercy to discuss her most recent book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, in this eye-opening episode. Just before we get to the podcast, I must remind you, the Leadership Summit applications are flying, but we will run out of spots. October 27th to the 29th, come join us in the beauty of the coastal mountains of BC at Sasquatch Mountain in Agassiz, where we will be having so many conversations around leadership, but ultimately, what does it mean to be a professional thought leader? Head to apologeticscanada.com slash leadership dash summit dash BC forward slash and make sure you apply today. November 3rd and the 4th, AC is heading to Ontario to hold our Rethinking Identity Apologetics Canada Conference at Glad Tidings Church in Burlington, Ontario. Fear, anxiety, frustration. We all feel it. These are some of the topics that feel off-limits unless you want to get labeled or canceled. Controversial cultural issues are affecting the dynamics of family, school, work, and church. We'd rather avoid talking about them, but not talking about them isn't helping. Christians are called to be the light of truth and show the love of God. This is no easy task, and to do it well, we need to talk. So the AC Conference is coming to Ontario to do just that. We will discuss the most pressing cultural issue of the day, identity. So sign up today and join the conversation. To do so, you can head to apologeticscanadacom conference23-Ontario forward slash. We have some incredible main sessions from none other than Ontario's very own Tim Barnett from Stand to Reason. We also will have Elizabeth Urbanowitz from foundationworldview.com, Tim Woodcock, who is actually the lead pastor of Glad Tidings Church, and many of our own from Apologetics Canada. So once again, head to apologeticscanadacom conference23-Ontario and sign up today we hope to see you guys there now let's get into this podcast. It's the AC podcast.
1: podcast hello good morning good afternoon good evening whenever and wherever you're listening to this Steve here from apologetics Canada welcome to the AC podcast I'm going to be your host for today and I have on the line with me um Professor Nancy Piercy I've been really looking forward to this uh this this interview, and I think many of you will find this to be a very surprising, it'll be filled with surprising insights. Uh, by way of introduction, Professor Nancy Piercy is the best selling author of seven books, including two ECPA Gold Medallion winners Total Truth Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity and How Now Shall We Live, co authored by Chuck Colson and Harold Fickett. Other books that she's authored include. The Soul of Science, and that's actually a really important book for us here at AC, and I'll say a little bit more later. The Soul of Science, uh, Finding Truth, Saving Leonardo, and Love Thy Body. And Love Thy Body was the book that we interviewed Professor Piercy on last time. And most recently, and this is the book that we're going to talk about today, is The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, published by Baker. Her books have been translated into 19 languages, and she's also contributed chapters to 15 books. She was a former agnostic uh, that there's a whole story of Professor Piercy studying under Francis Schaefer at Libri, uh, all those details. If you want to learn more, go to our website, nancypeercy.com. The PRC is spelled P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. Don't forget the E, NancyPiercy.com. Professor Peercy was hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. That's quite flattering there. She has published hundreds of articles in outlets like The Washington Post, The Washington Times, Fox News, uh, Human Life Review, First Things, Christianity Today, and many, many more. Uh, And she speaks, uh, not only is she a prolific writer, she's also a prolific speaker. She's been invited to many university campuses over the years, including Princeton, Stanford, University of Southern California, and and most recently, Liberty University. Uh, You might want to check that one out. She gave the convocation speech there, and the response has been just tremendous. Uh, she's currently serving as a professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Christian University, where she holds the Elizabeth and John Gibson Endow Chair in Apologetics. She's also a fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. She and her husband have two adult sons who are homeschooled. Professor Nancy Piercy, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Now, before we jump into this, I I have to say, because earlier I mentioned the soul of science and why that book is so important. I think we mentioned this at our uh, interview last time on your book, Love Thy Body, but our listeners might be interested to hear uh, my friend and boss, Andy Steiger. He did his PhD work on Michael Polanyi, and that was inspired actually by your mention of Michael Polanyi in The Soul of Science. And for me personally, I've just recently been accepted uh, into a PhD program, uh, and I hope to study uh, transhumanism and how far is too far, those kinds of questions. And the reason I got into a PhD program, it was largely inspired by watching Andy go through that process. So in a kind of a roundabout way, you if you directly influenced Andy's study, you indirectly influenced my study as well. So thank you for all of your work.
2: Oh, thank you for telling me about that. It's always good to hear the behind the scenes, you know, the things that have happened that you have no idea. So thanks for letting me know.
1: Yeah. So let's get into the book because I, I really enjoyed this read. This book, as a, as far as I can tell, is a response. It's a response to something. So. Let me ask you, why did you write this book in the first place?
2: Well, there were a couple of reasons, so I'm going to choose one of them. The final reason that I decided to write the book is when I ran into the sociological data on Christian men and found out that Christian men test out so high in terms of being loving and engaged husbands and fathers. This is in the psychological and sociological literature. I had to dig in the academic Literature to find this. Um, so, when I found this, I said, okay, this has to get out. This has to get out into the public. So, basically, as you no doubt know, you're an apologist, and so you're more aware of this than most people, but Christians are, co- are constantly being criticized by the, the secular culture. And one of them, one of the reasons is that Christians are said to be, well, if you hold any view of male headship in the home, that is said to turn you into an overbearing, tyrannical, oppressive patriarch. And so what happened is the, uh, the social scientists were listening to this. Oh, and I'll give you just one example. Um, I found lot of, lots of examples with a quick Google search, but the, uh, this is one, the founder, co-founder of the Church To movement, which followed the Me Too movement, uh, said this. Mm-hmm. She said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And social scientists, so this would be psychologists, sociologists, were reading these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And in my book, I I quote about uh, a dozen studies. And they all found that the, the actual evidence debunks the secular narrative that, in fact, Christian men test out very well. Their, their um, wives test out as the happiest with their husbands' expressions of love and affection. They spend more time with their children than any other group, 3.5 hours more per week than secular men. Evangelical couples divorce at a lower rate of any other group in America, 35 percent lower than secular couples. And then the real surprise oh. is they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America. And I thought, who knows this? You know, I certainly didn't. Mm. And I, I don't think our churches know this because even, even in our churches, I think we sometimes get caught up in uh, the secular narrative that, that men are not doing very well. I have a graduate student who is the head of the women's ministry in a large Baptist church here in Houston. And she said, mm-hmm. on Mother's mm-hmm. Day we hand out flowers and tell the mothers they're wonderful. <laughs> on Father's Day we scold mm-hmm. the men and tell them to do better. So I thought <laughs> <laughs> even the even the Christian churches need to know, actually they need to be mm-hmm. supporting and encouraging and affirming Christian men that they are in fact doing very well. Mm-hmm. And it also I think is very important yeah. for apologetics, right? Because we need to get this information out to show that the secular narrative is wrong. And it's not just a pep talk mm-hmm. from some religious leader. Like, this is evidence-based findings that show that Christianity mm-hmm. really does have the power to, to, to reconcile the sexes, as I put it in the subtitle of my book. Yeah,
1: I found your book very encouraging. Um, and at the same time, very surprising, precisely because I grew up in the church, hearing all the talking points about the divorce rate in, among Christian couples being, you know, the same as secular couples, and how men are, especially if they hold to any sort of complementarian views, if we believe in male headship in the home and things like that, it just directly leads to not even just indirectly it directly leads to domestic ab- abuse and things like that. And so because I was so enculturated in in those talking points in some ways I didn't find it very surprising that we would see articles come out, you know, scolding men. Although at times I was just surprised, sometimes I'm shocked by the vitriol that comes out in these articles. Um, Can can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's the sort of the level of, you know, disappointment or even hatred towards men in our culture today?
2: Well, let me back up and talk about the the divorce rate, because that was an important one. That's the first pushback I always get, right, is that Christian couples Mm. divorce at the same rate as the rest of culture. So the the researchers went back to the data, and they did make that very important distinction between men who are actually committed— evangelicals who attend church regularly. They're authentic about it. Um, and nominal Christians, because in America, in North America, we do have an awful lot mm-hmm. of nominal, you know, cultural Christians. And so these are men who on a survey right. like this might check the Baptist box, for example, uh, but they don't actually attend church, rarely, if at all. It's more of a cultural family background. And these men test out shockingly different. They fit all the toxic talking Mm -hmm. points, to use your phrase. So their wives test out as being the unhappiest in their marriages. Mm. They spend the least amount of time with their children. Their divorce rate is actually higher than secular men, 20% higher than secular couples. And they have, the real shocker, they have the highest rate of uh, domestic violence and abuse of any group in America, higher even than secular men. And so Mm -hmm. this is where a lot of these stereotypes come from. If you just look at evangelicals sort of an umbrella term, you're going to get men who are better than secular men, but also men who are worse than secular men. And so, of course, the numbers are going to be skewed. And in a sense, we might Mm -hmm. say it's it's those nominal men who are out there uh, ruining the reputation of evangelicals because Mm -hmm. I was a little surprised at how many there were. Um, You and I probably hang out mostly with fairly committed Christian men. So I thought there would be a small group. No, it's about the same size. So you have about a 50-50 chance. If you meet somebody who identifies as evangelical, you have a 50-50 chance that there will be the committed type or the nominal type. And so that does mean a lot of people have engaged with the nominal Christians and have come away with an, mm-hmm. a negative understanding of evangelicals. So that's important psychological data and also important for our churches to realize, right? Because on the one hand, we should be encouraging the men who are doing well, but what about these nominals? Is mm-hmm. there a way for the church maybe to be reaching out better, you know, more effectively and discipling them yeah. and helping them to realize what they've done is essentially they've taken biblical words like headship and submission, but they've infused them with secular meanings, you yeah. know, meanings from the secular culture.
1: So let me actually pick up on that. There are a couple of things I want to ask you about. First one is going back a little bit, you mentioned cultural sort of nominal Christians versus those who are committed. First, okay, how do we tell the difference between uh, nominal Christians and the committed Christians in terms of these sociological studies. And secondly, I want to pick up on this. You mentioned in the book, there are two scripts of what it means to be a man. So can we can we address that in turn? So first, nominal Christians versus committed Christians. What are some criteria that we use to determine the difference?
2: Yeah, so there have been a lot of studies, and so they have different ways of determining it. Um, and I have seen studies where they ask things like, you know, uh, how often do you read your Bible and pray? You know, or how important is your religion to you? Or you know, do you feel close to God? I mean, there's a lot of ways to try to get at the more subjective side, but you know what they found? They found that it works pretty well to just ask how often they go to church. You know, that's a very external, very quantifiable measure, but it tends to correlate quite well. Uh, David Larson was a psychologist who did studies on mental health, and he did the same thing. He found uh, that you could pretty much correlate how committed a, a person was to that Christian faith by if they simply went to church regularly, which makes your study much easier. You know, you don't have to ask these very probing questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the sociologists found the same thing. So. That's what they did. Essentially, um, the, the committed Christian ghost in, in the major study. The biggest study I relied on uh, was by a sociologist at the University of Virginia, and he's considered one of the top marriage researchers in the nation. And he basically defined it by attending church three times or more per month. And that tends to work. Mm-hmm. So surprisingly, it, mm-hmm. it does tend to work. And you did ask about the two scripts for masculinity. Let me give you a little background on this because that's not in the book. It has proven to be the most controversial book that I've written, which I did not expect (laughs) because Love Thy Body (laughs) deals with issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which are really front burner issues today. But at least in the mm-hmm. Christian world, this has been more controversial. And what I always do with my books is I, I teach it in my classes. I lead reading groups because I like to get a lot of feedback. I want to catch all the all the pitfalls, right? And when they would tell mm-hmm. friends that they were going through a book on masculinity, invariably the first question would be, whose side is she on? You know, with that kind of tone, right. whose side wow. is she on? Mm-hmm. And the second question was always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity? Anyway, so men, men tended to just assume that a woman writing a book on the subject would be a male bashing feminist. And more progressive okay. types yeah. tended to assume that I was an angry reactionary culture warrior. And so I put this mm. study right at the beginning of the book. Because it, what it means is, is there are really two scripts for masculinity that most men feel you know, sort of trapped between. And you're not just for or against masculinity. You're for the good parts, right? The biblical view of masculinity. But we can think critically about the secular script. And so this was was a study done by a sociologist. He's not a Christian, but he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with a really clever experiment. He would ask young men two questions. First, he would say, what does it mean to be a good man? Right, you're uh, Mm. at a funeral, And in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And the sociologist said, young men had no trouble answering that. They would immediately start listing off things like honor, duty, uh, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing. Look out for the little guy. Be responsible, be a protector, be a provider.
1: Even as you are saying this, those words like honor and duty and sacrifice, it really resonates with me as a as a man and as a father. Like, That's the kind of person that I want to be. It does something to my soul as you're listing them off.
2: And isn't it cool that men all around the globe say this? The sociologists would ask them, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were from a Western country, yes, that's right. a Western country, they would often add, though, um, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. But what I found interesting is that this is universal. It seems to be innate. I would say men are made in God's image. And so they do sense you know, what it means to be the good man. Or, or we might call this general revelation, too. Right. It's just, it's just what people know because they're made in God's image, live in God's world, um, as opposed to a special revelation, which is the Bible. I thought, I thought that was incredibly encouraging to hear that men universally know what it means to be a good man. But this experiment yeah. went on to a second question. And then he would follow up with the sociologist would follow up with a second question where he would say, what does it mean if I say man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, oh, no, that's completely different. <laughs> that means be tough, be right. strong, never show weakness, suck it up play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. Mm. And so the sociologists concluded that it, it does seem that there's a universal sense of what it means to be a good man. But men also feel pressured by cultural scripts that say, you know, no, the, the quote unquote real man uh, is quite different. And, and the real man might be what we today would consider more toxic, at least if disconnected from a moral ideal it can slide into things like um, entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. And so this, this does give us a much, a much better way of dealing with this, these issues because uh, most men don't respond very well to being called toxic. <laughs> Nobody would. So is there a way that we can tap into that innate, inherent, universal knowledge of what it means to be the good man, to support and affirm and encourage that? and if we can do that it gives us a much more positive way to approach these issues
1: yeah and, and you know the sort of the idea of toxic masculinity that's floating around sometimes i'm a little worried as a father i have a son he is about to turn 8 um next month and and i'm just worried that as he grows up that he'll associate toxic these toxic traits with masculinity per se. I mean, it it's, it seems like the messaging is so pervasive that young boys, like, I mean i I am worried as a parent for both of my kids. I have a daughter and a son, but I have this concern that i I never really. I never really dealt with it in in a lot of ways I guess I I just kind of tuned myself out to the messaging but just watching my son I, I I I am concerned how did it come to this like why why is this message so pervasive and where did this idea of this toxic masculinity come from anyway
2: Yeah um by the way I I just found an um it's a news periodical a tabloid a news tabloid from uh, Australia and the cover image is about a seven-year-old boy. So you're talking about your seven-year-old boy who's almost eight. Oh, so it showed a seven-year-old boy, and in the title was How Do We Stop This Kid from Becoming a Monster? And underneath it said, oh. you know, schools need to address the problem of toxic masculinity. And I thought, who who tells parents? Be careful, your seven year old might become a monster. What kind of ideology is that? So yes, I sh- so I share your concern. and i'm I'm also concerned uh, that many of them, many even Christian young people are turning to figures like Andrew Tate, who, you know, mm-hmm. on the one hand tells young men to to work out and get you know and make money, which could be construed positively. but he's extremely immoral. you know he he does call himself a pimp he right out. Because he mm-hmm. does run an OnlyFans company, right? Where he basically—and he says this too—he says, yeah. "I'm I'm I'm marketing pornography." He's, he's quite open about it. But I received an email from a former graduate student of mine who now teaches high school, and she said, "All my boys, all my students, male students, are into Andrew Tate. They're even using his uh, quotes from Andrew yes. Tate in the yearbook." And I said, "What kind of what kind of school is this?" She said, "Classical Christian school." So even oh, even young goodness. Christian boys. So where did it come from? You know, in my book, I, I deal with several stages, but I'll give you just one because it's the most relevant to the Andrew Tate phenomenon. You know, the rise of Darwinian evolution had a huge impact. And most of us are surprised by that because we think, you know, that's about science, right? That's about fossils and genes. But it had a huge impact on the secular view of masculinity because Darwinian writers began to say that the Men who won out in the struggle for survival would be the ones who were rugged, ruthless, brutal, savage, barbarian, and sexually predatory. And so whereas before we had urged men to live up to the image of God in them, Darwinian writers began to urge them to live down to their presumed animal nature, to the beast within. That was their favorite phrase. Mm -hmm. This was when Tarzan was written, by the way, and his son. The son of the author says, Tarzan, Tarzan was explicitly written to show that we are just part of the, the, the animal world. And so Tarzan has, you know, he's strong and, and, and um, courageous because he's been raised by the apes. And at the end, uh, even though he's learned European languages and customs, he turns to Jane at the end and says, I'm still a wild beast at heart. So that was the message of evolution. And it's still around today. It's called evolutionary psychology, but it's, this, it's a revival of the same message. I'll give you an, um, a couple examples. There's a best selling book, best selling, it means a lot of people are reading it, and it's called The Moral Animal. And the author says the human male is, an obs- uh, is a possessive, um, oppressive, flesh obsessed pig. Giving him a book on how wow. to have a better marriage is like giving a Viking a book on how not to pillage. I thought, really? He, he can wow. get away with such a demeaning message? And that this becomes a bestseller? And there's a new one, too. Um, it's, it's an older book that's just been reissued by George Gilder, Men in Marriage. And he says the same thing. He says, you know, a man, uh, a single man you know, without a woman to tame him is, is going to be violent is going to be irresponsible. Is it going to be sexually predatory? You know, his deepest yearning is to jump on his motorbike and ride off into the horizon, like a lone ranger. And by the way, yes, he does then say it's up to women to tame these men, but that's the message of evolution. And I'm saying, I think the Andrew Tate phenomenon is drawing a lot on this secularized script for masculinity.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, Listening to you say this and just reading your book, it seems to me that there is this sense of—it almost seems fatalistic to me—that even granting the sort of this view of human beings as animals, why, why just assume that you know if you just that that we will necessarily turn into these monsters, or we have to live up to the live or down to the monster that we are. Uh or, or whatever it is so th- does that sound does that ring true to you that we think about this in a very kind of fatalistic way, even given you know that what the example that you mentioned about the seven year old boy um why it assume that if if we let this boy live his life that he'll turn into a monster? like there is this almost a fatalistic view of things
2: i think it's because uh, conflict is central to the um evolutionary scenario right it's a struggle mm, for survival right and therefore it's right. conflict and warfare and fighting and the men have to be these you know men have to develop the fighting instincts the the lust for power and dominance and and at least that is how darwinian thinkers have interpreted it The the person who um Popularized Darwinian thinking here in the in North America was Herbert Spencer, and he writes explicitly mm-hmm. that you know, men are these you know, fighters; they're oppressive. He he even addresses the question of well, if if men are su- such brutal beasts, how did women get along with them? And he and listen to what he says. Mm-hmm. He says, well, women had to develop the ability to please, and then he adds, it would also help if they learned how to hide their resentment at such bad treatment. So that was the message of evolution. Men are brutal beasts; Women need to learn to appease and placate them and hide their true feelings. So so this is a message that's been around for, for a while. Wow. With the imprimatur of science, I mean, th- this is why it wins out, right? Anything that has the imprimatur of science is going to win in our culture today. So it, as long as they could mm. say this is the scientific view. And by the way, Darwin also himself explicitly argued that women are intellectually inferior to men, you know, that men are uh, more wow. intelligent than women. And it was really kind of funny because he, he acknowledges that women are more sensitive and intuitive. But then he says, those are the traits of the lower species. So so even women's strengths wow. were signs of their inferiority. How is <laughs> so, he not cancelled already? He's starting to be in a few places. I've seen it. People are starting to say, wait okay. a minute. But I think it was more for his eugenics. <laughs> you know, he also, social Darwinism also led mm-hmm. to eugenics. And so he's been cancelled a few places uh, for his eugenics theories. Okay. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember where. In Britain, maybe the British Museum. Uh, somewhere I remember people had been cancelling him for his eugenics views.
1: Interesting. Now, on that uh, very cheery note, uh, maybe we'll turn a corner here. Um, so w- what can we do about this? You, you say that the, the long-term strategy for preventing toxic behavior in men is for fathers to invest deeply in their sons. So like, w- w- what are some practical steps that fathers can take to be more involved with their sons and their Daughters.
2: Yeah, I, I do think that f- the father son relationship is is a key one. I, I quote a psychiatrist who said, "We're not going to have a, a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers," and I, I think that that's mm. true. Um, well, and and um, fathers are regularly mocked and ridiculed and made fun of in the media today. So that that's a problem because right. that does demotivate men from becoming fathers, right? Uh, in, in uh, movies and advertisements, animations, you know, the Homer Simpson kind of paradigm. Yeah. My, my son really liked cool. the Berenstein Simston. Bears. Yikes. <laughs> mm. Berenstein Bears, you know, the father's always the bumbling idiot. Um, so, so how did that happen? Well, actually, it goes all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, because before that, men worked alongside their families, their wives and children all day on the family farm, the family right. industry, the family business. And so the father-son bond was very strong. In fact, this is a, a fun historical fact. Most of the books on child-rearing were addressed to fathers. You know, if you go into a typical bookstore today, they're mostly addressed to mothers. But back then, the literature on mm. parenting was addressed to fathers because fathers were considered the primary parent. Uh, and fathers, historians tell us that fathers did spend literally as much time with their children as mothers did. So where did we lose that? Mm. The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home, and of course, fathers had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, they were not working with people they loved, family members. They they loved and had a moral Mm -hmm. bond with. They were working as individuals in competition with other men. And people began to say, already in the 19th century, people began to say, men's character is changing. They're becoming egocentric, Mm -hmm. self-centered, individualistic. Look out for number one, make it at all costs. And even the language of idol, they are turning their careers into an idol. Uh, they were becoming more secular. And as they did so, they were turning their financial success into an idol. And it also, so, so that's, when, that's when we first start seeing negative language applied to the male character. So when we talk about you know, where did the concept of toxic masculinity come from, that's when it began already in the 19th century. But also, this is when the denigration of fatherhood began, because if, when men were no longer intri- you know, daily, intricately connected to their families, people began to say, hmm, fathers are kind of out of touch. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not aware of the family mm-hmm. dynamics anymore. They don't really know what the kids are going right. through. So already in the 19th century, you see people starting to say fathers are becoming irrelevant and even incompetent. That word, which is the main one we hear today, you know, the incompetent father already in the 19th century, you start to see that. So the solution, of course, if that's the problem, the solution has to be reconnecting fathers with their kids. The the founder of the men's rights movement, the modern men's rights movement, Robert Bly, who wrote the book, the huge bestseller, Iron John. He said the love bond that was most damaged by the Industrial Revolution was the father-son bond. And he was right. Mm. So I do have a whole chapter. You, you can't you know, write a book like that without some practical steps. And I do have right. a chapter on with a lot of anecdotes of men who found ways to um, tweak the workplace, leave a few days early. I had a student who would leave a few days early to to coach his son's soccer and basketball teams. And by the way, um, his, his boss accused him of coasting. But he told me I, I didn't really lose mm. out professionally by doing that. And when my sons grew up, they said, we want to be a dad like you, which is much higher Mm -hmm. praise than any workplace accolade. And the pandemic was actual quite a game changer because Mm. um, Harvard University did a study and found that 68% of fathers say they do not want to go back to the office full time, that they would prefer to have some kind of a hybrid situation. And uh, the New York Times, of all places, actually had an article on this study. And it was, I love the title. The title was, During the Pandemic, fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. So Mm -hmm. I give give stories like, um, sometimes an anecdote helps to crystallize it. One of my students was married to an IT professional who came home during the pandemic. And because he was home, He was able to be more involved with the the family's homeschooling. He decided he he would be the one to make lunch every day. He was able to take his kids Mm -hmm. to soccer and choir practice. And he picked up so many of the family responsibilities that his wife was able to start a part-time business. And the whole family benefited from the added income. So I interviewed her husband, Mm -hmm. and he said, Our family is so much more balanced now. I am never going back to 40 hours in a cubicle. And then the final kicker was, Mm -hmm. he said... The time I used to spend commuting to work, I now spend praying with my wife every morning. So I put wow. lots of anecdotes like that. Yeah. So that just to help men think more creatively, you know, about can we work, can, can we find a way to flex the workplace? And by the way, we also have to persuade the corporations that this works. And I, I found uh, quotes from CEOs saying things like, we never wanted to do remote work before because we thought, yeah, people are going to slough off. And they're not going to mm-hmm. do their work. That fear has been completely exploded by the t- pandemic. We did not see any drop in productivity. If anything, people who work from home sometimes are more productive because they're not wasting time commuting and unnecessary meetings, right. et cetera. So we also have to bring quotes like this into our workplace and say, look, you know it's it's a win win mm-hmm. it's a win for the corporation, but it's a it's a win for children. you know it's a win for children to have their fathers be able to be more involved in their lives
1: Mhm now. Uh, earlier, we, we started our conversation with fathers who are religiously committed. Uh, we were specifically talking about uh, Protestant evangelical fathers uh, and the families. This is not to deny that sometimes abuse does happen in Christian homes. So then how can churches respond more effectively to that? Because we we can't turn a blind eye to this, obviously.
2: Right. Well, you know... First of all, um, even committed Christians, it's not zero. The rate of, of abuse is not zero. It's 2.8%. Um, and then, of course, um, the nominal men are even worse than secular men. So obviously, I had to address mm. that in the book. Otherwise, it would look like I was sweeping it under the carpet. And so I do have two chapters on abuse and um, how how mm-hmm. churches can deal with it more effectively. And fortunately... Theologians and therapists are writing better books on the subject today because in the past mm-hmm. they usually held a woman responsible. The books were mostly yeah. written to women. If you would just most, if you would submit more, if you would love more unconditionally, if you would forgive more, if you would make his favorite foods, you know, if you would just lose 30 pounds so you look better, literally, that was in one of the books, wow. <laughs> um, it, you know, then, then he will, st- you know, stop being abusive. Well, fortunately, therapists and theologians are starting to say, actually, that's not human nature. If somebody is really willing mm-hmm. to hurt someone to get their way, you know, who is a, an actual bully, in other words, we know that you can't deal with bullies by being nicer to them, by placating, mm-hmm. by giving in. We know that with the playground bully, we know that with the, uh, in international affairs with a belligerent nation, you know if you try to please and placate, they'll get worse. They'll take it as permission to do more. And fortunately, you're finally starting to see that acknowledged in the Christian world. Um I write this I wrote the book at the right time because I had a, a, a several good sources I could draw on uh, by you know impeccably orthodox Christian writers uh, who could say, uh, it's it's time to it's, it's time to follow Jesus' words in Matthew eighteen, right? Jesus says, if somebody's actually sinning against you, the response is to hold him accountable. And if he doesn't listen to you, Mm -hmm. you bring a few more witnesses. And if he doesn't listen to them, you bring it before the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, it might be time for some kind of church discipline. So Jesus told us how to deal with somebody who's sinning against you. And and it's not that you don't start Mm -hmm. with forgiveness and love and and impatience and all those things. Most of us need to practice more of that anyway. But I, I would say the majority of cases in the Christian world probably are these milder forms. But there are genuine cases of abuse as well. They're rare enough that I, f- I found, like I said, I, I did a lot of reading groups on the book. I found that it was a little bit difficult, um, that many, many Christians have not encountered real abuse. And so they were a little bit taken aback um, when I dealt with it in my book. And they, they would say things like, well, should, shouldn't, we, shouldn't we show more grace? Shouldn't we show more forgiveness? So the answer is yes, of course, you start there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... When it's truly abusive, then J- Jesus' words, you know, is really the answer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and it's, that's not some kind of liberal or, you know, feminist position. I found people with the focus on the family and, and other, you know, clearly conservative groups now are starting to say, you know, it's time to stand behind women. When, when men are actually disrespecting them to the point of hurting them, the church should be um, supporting them. And, the, and on a very practical measure, um, the most common mistake is to is to think it's a marriage problem and bring the couple into the pastor's office together. Mm-hmm. The reason that doesn't work is that if she, if he's truly being abusive, she probably won't admit it. Right. And if she does, she knows she'll be punished. You know, he's he's going to be angry at her for admitting it, mm-hmm. and he's going to punish her. He will probably abuse her that night when they get home. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are actually contributing to greater abuse. So that's one of the very practical steps. I go through several of, you know, kind of practical ways where the church can do a better job.
1: Okay. Um, Our time is coming to a close. Uh, There were a couple of things that I wanted to uh, touch on before we closed here. Um, The first one was that you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the interview about the reception that you received, and especially uh, sort of the harsh reaction. From within the Christian community, perhaps from the a little bit more of the liberal side of things, but uh, one of the uh, accusations or objections that I hear is that the sources that you use are biased. Um, How would you respond to that objection?
2: First of all, I have not heard that one. (laughs) Oh, okay, that's a new one. I have not heard. Yeah, I have not heard that the sources were biased. Here's what I have heard. Um, the the day after the book was released, a Twitter storm erupted on my Twitter feed uh, from people who were hard, you know, very very committed egalitarians. Mm-hmm. But they didn't say bias. What they said was two things. Uh, they said some of your sources are older. Well, okay. yeah, they they are. <laughs> um, they said they're out of date. Well, the one that they particularly objected to was one from two thousand and three. Mm-hmm by Sally Gallagher. She's a Christian sociologist. And frankly, my answer is, well, yeah, I was looking for all the sources I could. You think there's that many un-Christian, on evangelicals mm-hmm. out there? You know, e- sociology is a very secularized field. You know, some fields right. are more secular than others. Sociology is a very secularized field, and it's taken us a lot of work to get a couple of sociologists who are um, qualified, you know, who, who are who've made it through a secular PhD program and are in a position to do studies. There are not that many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you probably know some of them, like Christ- Christian Smith at Notre Dame. You probably know him because he's written a lot on uh, you know how the church can deal better with adolescents mm-hmm. and teens. Christian Smith is one. And uh, well, and Brad Wilcox, the one I mentioned earlier, who was right. at University of Virginia, at any rate, there are not that many studies, so yes, I cited everyone I could get my hands on. Right. <laughs> I really did. And 2003 is not that old. Mm. It's a little bit like saying, you know, DNA was discovered by Crick and Watson in the 1950s, and therefore it's no longer valid. Right. Well, of course, it's still valid. We've learned a lot more, but it's, mm. the double helix structure is still valid. So okay. I don't think that uh, I don't think that that holds water. That the some of, and not all of my sources. But some of them are a little older, but a lot of them are more recent because after all, by the way, as we've been successfully training up sociologists to go into the field, we're getting more and more studies. So that's very encouraging. The Institute for Family Studies posts a lot of of studies uh, by sociologists, up and coming sociologists. At any rate, so I I don't think it's valid to say it's out of date. The second thing that they argued with was um, this is a little odd. They said that uh, your book is giving ammunition to complementarians, and, you know, they were egalitarians. And so they said that's dangerous, harmful, and bad, you know, because you're encouraging complementarians, and we think that that's a bad position. Well, the irony is I didn't even deal with that that debate. I did not deal with egalitarian versus complementarian, because that's not what the sociologists are studying, Right. As, if, as an apologist, I was looking at the secular critics. The secular critics are saying evangelicals, you know, are these benighted, you know, um, out-of-date medieval um, patriarchs. And so what the sociologist was saying is, well, that's an empirical claim. Is it true? You know, uh, you need an empirical answer. You know, does belief in male male headship turn men into these overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs, or doesn't it? So they went out and did the empirical studies. And so that's what I was, that's what I'm citing in my book, empirical studies on evangelicals. Now, some of them are complementarian, um, but that was not the focus of the study. And in fact, I even explain why I'm not dealing with it. Two of my top researchers said it doesn't seem to matter. And that was the big surprise. I mean, surprise to me too. But Brad Wilcox, as a sociologist, said in my studies, I'm not seeing a difference. The husband's gender theory does not seem to make a difference in whether he has a good marriage and whether his wife is happy. In fact, he did one study on egalitarian marriages and said they're not any happier. I'm, you know, is, they're not. They're not testing out as any happier. And so he said, what does What does matter, by the way, is believing that the family is the most important thing. If you have a high view of the family, you will treat your wife and kids well, no matter what your gender theory is. Right. So that was one, my one expert. My second expert who said the same thing was John Gottman. Mm. Uh, Wilcox is Catholic. So when, when he's studying Protestant evangelicals, it's not because he's defending his tribe. Right. I'm not sure he was all that happy to find that Protestants test out higher than Catholics right. because they do <laughs> um, it, basically uh, Protest- Protestant evangelicals test out as top, Catholics test out and mainline Protestants test out sort of in the middle, secular people secular men at the bottom oh and then nominals even right. lower <laughs> so lower, that's lower kind that. of the breakdown mm-hmm. and I didn't put all those in there just because it was be- it would be too complicated but um, and john gottman is a psychologist and he's jewish background and uh, he's famous he's famous because he used to be a mathematician and so he does very quantifiable studies on couples he, he brings them into a laboratory and tests their heart rate and their breathing rate and their stress hormones and their sweat rate and 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 uh, codes their gestures like rolling your eyes codes their language and feeds all this into a computer and he's able to predict with 93.6 accuracy uh, which couples will divorce. <laughs>
1: oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah.
2: That that's that's why he's famous. You can right. you can imagine why. It's 93.6% accuracy. Who will divorce and even how soon. He'll say oh mm-hmm. this couple will last 7 years, this couple will last 15 years. Mm-hmm. So that's why he's famous. And he too says, I get couples who come into my practice and some of them think the man should be in charge and some of them are more egalitarian. And he said, you know what? It doesn't seem to matter. And here's how he puts it. His his phrase is, emotionally intelligent husbands have figured out the one important thing, which is how to convey honor and respect to your wife. Mm. So I put these two findings in there and said... I'm not going to deal with complementarian, egalitarian, because these t- two top researchers have said they don't see that it really matters. Okay. So I didn't deal with it, yeah. <laughs> but you have to <laughs> But Christians can't let it go. They don't understand that I'm really addressing the secular world, you know, the mm-hmm. objections from the secular world. They want to drag it into these in-house debates. Right. So egalitarians wanted to drag it into the, that their side, and and actually now sort of the Patriarchalists, if that's a word, right. <laughs> the the men who are saying no, no, we need to recover Christian patriarchy. Uh, some of them have now published more negative reviews as well. Mm-hmm. And, and the irony is, they both use the same language. The egalitarians <laughs> said, "You're giving ammunition." And, you know, they actually mm-hmm. use the word "you're giving ammunition" to the complementarians, and the patriarchals said, "You're giving ammunition to the egalitarians." <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but I still say it, it, what it's what it shows me is that Christians are stuck in their little bubble. Right. I don't care about these in-house debates. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a little strong, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I care about the, you know uh, answering the cr- criticisms and the objections from the secular world. That's mm-hmm. where my focus is, mm-hmm. and I think that's where we should be focused.
1: Okay, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, clearly, I misunderstood the objection. That it was one of bias, but it was re- really more about the the scarcity of it that got you to some of the older data. That's not really that old. Um, so anyway, thank you. Two
2: thousand and three. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, the last thing that I wanted to touch on is, I mean the the s- subtitle uh, is of your book is how Christianity reconciles the sexes. What do you think is what? What is it about Christianity that has that power, if you will?
2: well, first, I'll tell you why I chose the subtitle. I chose the subtitle because I had women readers who said "You've got to make sure that the that we know that the book is for us too mm-hmm. <laughs> because at first I had toxic you know the toxic war on masculinity in the title, and then I had something about manhood or something in the subtitle, mm-hmm. and women said, "Well, we're not going to read it then
1: <laughs> right." <laughs>
2: But if it's reconciling the sexes, that's like drawing in women and saying, no, 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 this is for you, too. But the answer, I grew up in a very abusive home. Mm. My father was severely physically abusive. In, in books on abuse, they sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? Mm. And it was closed fist. <laughs> you know, with, with the, uh, it was n- the knuckle fist, right? Oof. One finger extended to cause a sharper stab of pain. So he was punching, he was kicking, and um, it's not so surprising that we had six kids in our family. We all walked away from the faith, not surprisingly. Mm. Um, I walked away from the faith in high school, and of course I ricocheted off into extreme feminism. You know, I read all the great, the sort of foundational feminist books and loved them all, thought they were great. And, and so it was it, a big part of my life, my personal life, has been coming to a clear, biblical, healthy, positive view of masculinity. As I put it in the introduction, in a sense, I've been writing this book my whole life. <laughs> and so my own life shows the power because, you know, how did I get to the point of being able to write a book that's very positive towards masculinity? I had a, um, an interview with a Christian psychologist, and he said, when I read your opening story, I thought, oh, no, <laughs> you know, an abused woman, she's going to be angry at men. And he said, "I got into it, and it's not angry at all. It's very supportive. Yeah. It's very positive." Coming from a psychologist, I was I was glad to hear that mm-hmm. he thought it was positive. And you might be interested in this because it is part of my conversion story. And as you know, I um, I left the faith when I was in high school, and and immediately, you know, just totally immersed myself in all kinds of secularisms, mm-hmm. um, moral relativism, and you know, I, I was the one in my friend group arguing, you can't say anyone's right or wrong. Right. And I even thought, um, even skepticism, because as a 16 year old, I thought, if all I have is my puny brain and the vast scope of time and space, what makes me think I could have some sort of universal objective truth? Ridiculous. And that's how I thought it. Ridiculous. Mm. And for my science classes, I learned that we were just complex biochemical machines anyway. So I was also a determinist. Right. And so all of these mm. isms, and I, you probably, I think you know my story because I did end up at Brie in Switzerland, mm-hmm. the ministry of Francis Schaefer. And, and of course, that's where I first encountered apologetics. And I was right. blown away. I mean, I had no idea that Christianity mm-hmm. could be supported by good reasons and arguments and that it had good responses to all these secularisms that I had picked up. And I tell that story in some of my books. But what I have not told before and what I tell in this book is that's where I also started the emotional healing from from my abusive childhood. Because Aunt Staff Staff at Libri was a psychiatric social worker. Hmm. Her name was Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. And she was there because she realized that for a lot of young people, uh, the barriers to Christianity are not just intellectual, but also emotional, especially Hmm. if they grow up in Christian families. You know, the the pastor's kid, the missionary kid, traditionally has more difficulties. She was a missionary kid, by the way. And so she she was the one who really helped me to 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 get started on sort of spiritual, emotional, psychological healing. Mm. I had I had thought when I left home I could create a blank slate, you know, leave my past behind and recreate myself from scratch. You know, my childhood was so so painful, I just wanted to totally suppress it. And she's the one who said, Well, yeah, you can't actually do that. That doesn't work psychologically. <laughs> you you actually have to work through your past, you know, bring healing. know, and and basically, and the bottom line is work through to an experience of God's love. And ultimately, you know, God's love is what is healing. He has healing power. Hmm. And it's all about trying to work through to a relationship with God that's so profound and so transformative that his love heals all those wounds. And so I, I look back and say, how did this happen? You know, I got started in my Christian life with a really solid apologetics, you know, the intellectual side. I also got started with a really rich, deep, personal relationship with God. So yeah. I, I just I'm just very thankful.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, it's surprising to hear because we think, you know, apologetics, it's all intellectual, but ideas really do matter. Um, and, and as we study apologetics more, I know my view of God has been enriched. Uh, what it means for him to be a loving father. And I growing up, I, I love my father, but I didn't have a perfect father. He had his issues. But a lot of that, uh, I could sort of look at it in some ways objectively because I was able to receive love from our Heavenly Father um, and just kind of not get completely wrapped up in all the failures of my father, even though I deeply love him. But yeah, anyway, thank you uh, so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to come talk to us about these very important issues. Now, if people want to learn more about you and your work, they want to purchase your books and things like that, where would you send them?
2: Well, you know that you can buy my books on Amazon because you can buy everything. (laughs) everything on Amazon. But my publisher very kindly uh, created a redesigned web page for me so uh, NancyPiercy.com. and you were so kind you said p-e-a-r-c-e-y most people don't think to say that (laughs) Um, but you can come and browse my other books we've talked about a few of them today and you can leave a comment Uh, Mm -hmm. I I don't have time to answer them all but I I read them all so nancypearcy.com come on over and say hello
1: Great. Well, uh, I hope this interview has been an eye opening one for you. I know. Professor Piercy's book upended a lot of what I've been just kind of taking for granted. So I, I really highly encourage you to go out there, and get a copy of The Toxic War on Masculinity How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Well, thank you for joining us, listeners, on this edition of the AC podcast. We'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, you know the drill love God, love people. Bye for now.
0: It's
2: the 18th Podcast.